0: Hi, everyone. Quick message before we start. We are working on new episodes of the podcast. So this is one that we've pulled from the archives. It's one of my favorites. It's with Dr. Richard Miller, who founded iRest Meditation. Fantastic interview about his work with wounded warriors and how iRest Meditation helps them heal from trauma. And we will be back with new episodes soon. And a quick note that the One Mind Meditation Podcast is part of an excellent podcast network called Podcastica. I encourage you to go check that out over at podcastica.com. Okay, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Welcome everybody, thanks for tuning back in. We took a one week hiatus as we launched one of our new courses, the How to Meditate Core Training Program. And now we're back with a great interview with someone I have tremendous respect for, Dr. Richard Miller. Before we get into the interview, I want to ask you a favor. Can you leave us a rating and a review over in iTunes? Let me know how I'm doing and what you think of our show. I really appreciate your honest feedback. So, back to the interview. Dr. Richard Miller is a meditation teacher and the founder of iRest which is a research-based transformative practice of deep relaxation and meditative inquiry. I participated on a panel about non-duality over a year ago with Richard, and I've wanted to interview him ever since because I was so taken by his work, his extraordinary work, treating veterans who were just returning from Afghanistan and Iraq and suffering from very serious and chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And at the heart of this treatment is, you guessed it, meditation. And his treatment has had dramatic results helping soldiers deal with PTSD and really heal. The treatment has been so successful that the U.S. Army Command, they embraced i rest wholeheartedly right from the beginning. And in the second half of this episode, you're going to hear from Richard all about those dramatic results he got with the veterans and the moving stories of people who really were transformed. And in the first part of this interview, Richard shares his own story of his journey into meditation and really how he developed iRest. So this episode, it's a little longer than usual, but I think it's worth it. And I think you're gonna appreciate all the rich meditation tips and tools that Richard shares with us, like his five questions that he asks himself every time he sits down to meditate and the 10 steps in his iRest protocol. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Richard, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Thank you, Morgan, happy to join you.
0: Fantastic, so I think we can just jump right in. And I love to start by asking our guests if you can just share a little bit about your own story. What led you to meditation to start practicing and how did you come to teach it and integrate it into your clinical practice?
1: Yeah, I would say it's been a lifelong journey. It really matured into I would say, a a quest in meditation in 1970 when I was living in San Francisco, new to the area, having moved from the East Coast, Mm -hmm. looking to make some friends, and I wandered into a yoga class as a way to meet people. Mm -hmm. What was paradoxical is the director decided to hold the building and that particular class in silence for the 12 weeks that it was going on. So, I actually never met a person because we came into the building in silence and left in silence, which was a a funny experience being new to meditation for me. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the first class, I had a most extraordinary, I would say life-changing experience where my sense of separation just dissolved and I felt myself at one with the universe and I remember walking home that evening and really feeling that I had discovered what I had been looking for for decades and that I wanted to dedicate my life to understanding what just had happened. If I go back, I can see entreways or portals when I was oh, 14 and another time when I was very young when I had migraine headaches so severe I had to be hospitalized at times, wow. the way that I learned to deal with the pain was by closing my eyes in a dark room and basically shutting down all thinking. And mm. what I came to learn back then is if I don't have thoughts, there's no pain. Mm. The moment thinking would come back, the pain would come back. So I would say I started meditating when I was around five or six. But formally, I really started in 1970 after that life-changing experience uh, at the end of a yoga class when we were lying in deep relaxation and all sense of separation just dissolved. And there was this extraordinary moment of just feeling deeply at peace. That lasted for several weeks, but after it faded, It left that indelible stamp of wanting to better understand okay, how do I basically awaken to this? Can I make this my everyday experience, not just Mm. a state that comes and goes? Mm. So over the years, I got involved in meditation. I started with Paramahansa Yogananda and I went through his teachings. I went through a series of teachings. I found my way over to India and back, and in 1984, met. Jean Klein, who became really my spiritual mentor guide, who really helped me understand this sense of no separation and a falling in, I would say, to grace, to mm-hmm. a deep awakening a number of years ago where that sense of peace just in a way woke up and didn't turn off. So I find this deep, indelible equanimity and underlying sense of joy or peace that just accompanies me now through my daily life and experiences. It doesn't get rid of the daily humanness. I find myself still going through challenges and times of sadness if a friend of mine has died or there's some crisis going on, sometimes pain. But that underlying sense of equanimity and joy remains as a kind of a constant under underlying hum Mm. so it helps keep a sense of non-separation even as as a human being i am experiencing moments of self other separation it's an interesting paradox to live with my five senses in mind seeing borders boundaries separate objects and yet something inside doesn't know separation I know this is a basic core feeling of being and awareness that we all carry, uh, and that it's always here for everyone. It's just a question of that waking up to itself.
0: Before this yoga class, when you had this experience and subsequent awakenings, was this something aside from that extraordinary, what I would qualify as a rather extraordinary insight for a five year old? Was there Anything else in your life up until that yoga class circumstances or uh, context in which you were seeking for something like this? Was there something do you think that led to that moment in your own life conditions? Were you, were you actively looking for something like this?
1: I was at a level in which I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was certainly searching. Mm-hmm. If I go way back... Even at a very early age, there was a moment, I think I was around two years old, where all of a sudden my sister appeared, the room around me appeared. I would say it's when my sense of self came online developmentally, but looking back at that moment, what started happening was a sense of separation. I I felt myself separate from my sister and the objects around me. Over time, growing up in a family that didn't really understand what I was experiencing, <clears throat> and I would talk about that feeling of feeling separate, but it didn't resonate in the family I grew up with, mm. it set me on a search. And I would say going through adolescence, uh, struggling with a sense of social adeptness, uh, being more of an introvert looking within and, and yet trying to meet a world outside that was asking me to be oftentimes other than what I felt I was led to a, a disparity. And there were times during my childhood, one time when I was 14, when I was lying outside one night looking up into the nighttime sky, imagining, I wonder what, and is there an end to this universe and projecting a An end where I came to this brick wall and then I realized if this is the end of the universe, then I wonder what's on the other side of the brick wall. And I jumped over and I came to another brick wall, jumped over, came to another brick wall. I must have done that for a number of minutes. And then all of a sudden all the walls again just disappeared and I felt that unitive experience that brought a sense of momentary peace. Mm. But at 14, I didn't have the maturity to recognize what was happening. And then through my late teens, again, that sense of separation just dogged me. It was mm. really a, a profound kind of existential moment-to-moment suffering that kept me trying to understand. And so I engaged in different communication processes, um, reading books. But until I fell into that yoga class, nothing had really congealed. Interestingly, shortly after that yoga class, I was volunteering in a clinic, a psychology clinic in San Francisco, a free clinic, and I met who would become a five-year mentor to me, a woman who had just arrived from the Far East, who had been raised in a Buddhist community, taught yoga when she was a child by her mother. And she became both my mentor for learning the art of psychotherapy, but also she right away began introducing me to Mahayana Buddhism. I began sitting in Mahayana and Zen. Mm. Uh, We talked about the integration of the teachings of yoga into psychology. So in those years, I would say from 70 until about 75 or 6, I had an incredible mentor that was helping me integrate at a psychological level, but also exploring this separation, non-separation. So under her tutelage and mentorship, I had a number of glimpses, I would say, of that sense of non-separation. After... Working with her for a number of years, I really got deeply involved with the Taoist master and then in the teachings, uh, deeper teachings of yoga as a therapeutic perspective. Again, trying to figure out how do I bring an end to suffering. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I got very involved in hatha yoga and pranayama. And there was a moment, I remember, when I was practicing a particular asana, I had reached behind my head and I was holding onto my foot standing on one leg. And I remember thinking to myself, now that I've caught a hold of my foot, am I ever any better than for not holding on to it? And I realized that the Hatha yoga had brought me to a particular sensitivity with my body, but it wasn't going to really awaken or bring an end to that sense of suffering. Right. So I continued to practice Hatha yoga, but it dropped away as a part of the search. The same thing happened with my breathing practices. I, I came so that I could hold my breath for basically a couple of minutes at a time, do all these powerful energetic exercises. But I realized I still fundamentally wasn't any better than I was. I just had command now of energy and breath. It was when I came to meet Jean Klein in my first meeting with him, when I told him what I was looking for he made a very profound statement. He said, your search has brought you to this moment here. Now drop the search. Mm-hmm. It took me a number of years to understand that simple statement of dropping the search. Because what I came to realize is now my searching, which had concentrated my attention, focused me, helped me become sensitive to my body, mind, and senses. But now the search was taking me away. He was supporting me to just come back and be. And so, through his guidance, more and more I felt this underlying ease of being that I began to fall into. And as I did, that sense of separation and suffering would drop away. And then, one evening in 1998, that sense of being just took over, and I realized. One, the simplicity of it, and two, that it had always been here, and that as I really steeped in being, all the sense of separation, all the sense of suffering just went away. I got very involved through Jean's teachings with the non-dual approaches of both Advaita, which I had already been reading into, but even more so with Jean, and the teachings of Kashmir non-dualism, which again emphasize just falling into being and I would say even beyond being to a deeper quality of awareness where there is no sense of self or separation. Mm. What's been interesting to me along the way, and I think of it as in two or three movements, one is my needing to involute and become a a human being, friendly with my emotions, friendly with my thoughts, friendly with my body and senses. Because what I began to see is, to the degree that I wasn't on friendly terms with myself as a psychological being, I would continually be distracted by a particular emotion. So Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time looking at emotions, looking at my thoughts, and becoming friends with them, inviting them all in for tea and conversation and learning mm-hmm. how, to, how to befriend them and utilize them.
0: Question there, Richard, was that, did that fall into more, it's obviously inherently a spiritual practice, what you're describing, but did that come from your psychological training or from your work with Jung Klein? It came
1: When I was working in the early 70s with this woman from the Far East, Laura, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who really – I consider her someone who saved my life because I came from a family where emotions weren't really welcomed. And she really helped me learn about emotions, learn about thoughts, learn how to relate to them as I call the messengers that are – helping me know how to communicate and move through the world. Mm. So I would say it was in those early years of really getting oriented to what the play of emotions and thoughts are in our life as a human being and that they're here to help us. So I lost, I would say, my fear of emotions Mm. and fear of thoughts and learned how to integrate them. So Laura really helped me on that road of integration as a psychological being Jean's teachings were more oriented to the awakening into the felt sense of the simplicity of being and Mm non-separation.
0: Got it. All right. So then you were telling us it was 1998 and you had had this kind of pivotal experience. I would be curious to hear, one, if you could just take us to if there's a natural conclusion to the arc of of this narrative you're sharing about your own journey.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there was that first arc, I call it involution. For me, it's becoming a functional human being operating on all 12 cylinders Mm -hmm. as a functional ego separate from others, but really learning how to be in the world and be grounded so I wasn't distracted by my psychology. The next phase that Jean really took me through, I call it the evolutionary of coming back to my underlying sense of being and awareness and what lies even beyond the sense of self. That was that real profound awakening in 98, which when I say profound, it was profound in the sense that I recognized the simplicity of it But it was simple in the sense that I recognized the simplicity of being, that it's always here, but I was ignoring it, trying to think that it must be more complex than this Mm. just simple feeling of being.
0: Mm.
1: In really recognizing the felt sense of being and falling into it, what I've come to see is it engaged me in an even deeper involutional coming back to being a human being where now i see my body my mind my senses they're all in the in the genetic or evolutionary path of separation where you know my eyes they see borders they're designed to see boundaries and create a sense of separation but uh, i would say the spiritual teachings awaken another aspect in us or in me that doesn't recognize separation So now I find myself, moment to moment, with feet in two worlds at the same time, one that recognizes borders, boundaries, separation, self, other, and another one that doesn't. It just sees and feels this underlying shared field of being that innervates and I would say gives rise to the entire universe. And meditation now for me is simply coming back fully into being like i was doing this morning letting go of all extraneous thoughts and then letting go of the sense of separation that my eyes and senses install and then seeing this i call it a whisper of self-consciousness or self-awareness and seeing that even as a movement in the body-mind and that lets go and then It feels to me that I'm being called back into where we all come from, where I come from, where all sense of self dissolves, and there's a moment where everything falls away. I only know that because in a moment later, there's a kind of a return of self-awareness and self-consciousness, but i come back with that perfume of where I just was. Where I would say I am not, where there's no I registering it, almost like the deep sleep we fall into at night. But I come back again transformed, the felt sense of this non-separation as a perfume just permeates uh, the body. And I just go back into life and looks like a normal human being doing my work in the world. But this deep ease and peace that accompanies it.
0: Can you detail a little bit for us, what is the practice that you're doing explicitly? Do you follow some instructions when you meditate, when you...
1: I do in a a way, sure. There's a moment where when I sit, and when I say sit, I could also be just sitting outside in an easy chair. But when I'm sitting, Mm -hmm. I first welcome the intention that I'm sitting and it's time to let go of thinking and extraneous movements. And then I take a little bit of time just to welcome the body, notice any emotions or thoughts that might be present, and just welcoming them. Then they kind of fall away. And then this ease of being floods foreground. And in a way, I can watch my thinking mind begin to recede up and off to the side. And I feel myself being taken back almost behind, and a sense of being called into a deeper beingness. And this felt sense of being, which to me is very somatic, it's very much a bodily feeling, there's a moment where I realize that even that is an appearance in awareness, and I feel myself being taken by a wider, vaster sense of awareness which doesn't have any real qualities in it. And as I'm sitting in that openness of awareness, I can feel just this whisper of self-awareness, something here that's commenting, oh, look, here I am being awareness. And then I notice that that's just a thought appearing in that awareness. And it's like a moment of just saying, I'm ready, take me. And there's a deeper sense of falling back into being, awareness, where that whisper of self-awareness may remain for the rest of the time I'm sitting, another thirty minutes or so, or there may be periods where it blinks out, and for all intents and purposes, I blink out and then I blink back in as a kind of a reconstituting and then a disillusion and a reconstituting. And I've come to understand, and sometimes I'll do it in my own meditation, five simple questions that I have found are very profound kind of doorways into being, Mm. invitations. And The five questions are, when I'm just being and that felt sense of being awareness, where do I feel my location is in space? And I feel into that question and I realize I'm everywhere and nowhere specific. And as I'm sitting in that everywhereness, I ask the question, so when I'm just being, what's happening to my thinking mind and to time? And I realize the thinking mind just slows down and may even stop and time disappears. So I feel like I'm in my timelessness. And the third question I'll just inquire into politely is, as being, do I have any need or do I lack for anything? And I realize as being, I'm sitting in my perfectionness. There's no sense of lack or no sense that I need anything. Mm. And then I ask, is this familiar? And I can feel how being, every moment I touch it, is while it's always brand new, it's always the same in a paradoxical kind of way, and I realize it's something I've always known. And then the last kind of inquiry, is there anything special I need to do to have this sense of being? And I realize, no, it's always here. It's kind of like my uh, birthright. And with those five questions, I've kind of feeling my spacious, unlimited, timeless, perfect, complete wholeness. Mm. And then I let go of any kind of inquiry or questions and I just keep falling deeper and deeper into being. When I open my eyes and I come back and go back into my daily life, that feeling of being then accompanies me all day long and what i've now come to recognize is it breaks through i don't have to go looking for it it it's searching me out all day long so i may be working on my computer or even as i'm here talking with you it keeps breaking through and announcing itself so to mm. speak and interrupting the sense of separation and it keeps that ease of being in the background paradoxically even when i find myself sometimes getting upset as a human being in daily life, that beingness keeps saying, don't separate, stay present, um, Mm -hmm. and then navigate whatever it is that's upsetting.
0: I'd like to move on. Mm -hmm. And I would love to shift now a little bit more into your work. Yes. And I would love if you could tell us about Yoga Nidra and what is Yoga Nidra? And then also, how does that relate to your work in what you developed as iRest? rest What is I-Rest? Sure. And the whole process behind it.
1: Sure. Yoga Nidra is an ancient form of meditation that comes out of the yoga tradition. And it is in 1970 when I had that really profound experience. It was what the teacher was leading us through, a kind of a cursory, simplistic form of yoga nidra. I think of the word yoga as meaning the felt sense of our interconnectedness, both with ourself and the world around us, so we don't feel a sense of separation. Nidra is a Sanskrit word that, while it means sleep, it's a concept that represents a changing state of consciousness, which could be sleep or waking. It could be sadness, happiness, irritation, joy. It's a changing state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So the word yoga nidra means to feel your interconnected wholeness with the totality of the universe, no matter what state of consciousness you may be experiencing as a human being. There's a beautiful word that underlies yoga nidra. It means it's R-T-A from Sanskrit, Rutta. It means to feel yourself moment to moment in harmony with the totality of the universe. Hmm. So we might say yoga nidra is a form of meditational inquiry where we're recognizing that underlying felt sense of being that creates and gives rise to that sense of both interconnectedness and interconnectedness with oneself and with the totality of the universe, no matter the state of consciousness that's arising. Mm. And when I met it in 1970 and I began to look into the yoga teachings and explore this teaching of meditation through the teachings of yoga that Laura was introducing me to, then through Mahayana and the teachings of Zen and then through Taoism and then I actually was investigating becoming a minister in the Christian church. And I began to see the underlying kind of tone that was through all these spiritual traditions I was traversing. And yoga nidra as a teaching provided me essentially with a skeletal framework that I could hang any teaching on and better understand it. So I started really honing in on the teachings of Yoga Nidra, investigating where it came from. And as I discovered the teachings of non-dualism, that further integrated with the teachings of Yoga Nidra. And it first came to me with the trappings of India and the Eastern culture that it had grew up in. And I became interested in, if I stripped away the cultural aspects of it, could I find the underlying simple thread that constituted the real teachings of Yoga mm-hmm. Nidra that weren't mm-hmm. specific to the East, but I mm-hmm. could see in every spiritual tradition? So I started stripping away a lot of the practices that I felt were more embedded in the East or in a kind of a religious aspect and mm-hmm. really looking at the underlying tone. So I came up with 10 simple aspects. Um, pieces that I think constitute the real essence of yoga nidra and the the ten are finding the felt sense of being that connects us with life itself that's given birth to us, Uh, recognizing the intentions we carry to feel and recognize that sense of being moment to moment in our life, a deep I would say inner resource of equanimity or joy that we can awaken through the practices. And then practices of body sensing and breathing to get very sensitive to the subtle currents and movements of information that we're being given that help us know when we're separating or not. And then working with emotions and thoughts to become really friends with them so our emotions and thoughts become our allies rather than our enemies and then awakening deep joy, and then awakening to this deeper aspect of awareness that gets then integrated into all the other movements of the practice. And the final one is taking it out into the world and seamlessly integrating it into our relationships, our work with our children and our spouse and our, the work we do in the world. What I saw happening in myself as a result of traversing the path of meditation and Yoga Nidra specifically, was it awoke a a tremendous sense of compassion. When I realize I'm not separate, everyone around me then becomes myself, an aspect of myself. And so I I realized the teaching that Buddha spoke of that when he woke up, he became a compassionate human being where he realized if everyone is myself, then my enlightenment really isn't complete until everyone has recognized that, and that started me in wondering, because I was teaching back in the middle 70s these practices, but teaching to what I call the choir, people who were just coming, who were interested. How might I be able to take this into other populations like the homeless, or uh, into a mental hospital where I was working, or into other chemical dependency units and things? And so I began to reach out into these other groups. I got involved with the Institute of Noetic Sciences doing a research study at a homeless shelter in Petaluma, looking at how might these practices of yoga nidra help people who are homeless. And interestingly, in the first research study that I did with IONS in this homeless facility, The first class, I gave that simple five-question inquiry, you know, where are you, when are you, how are you, when you're just being. And Mm -hmm. there was a woman, I'll never forget her remarks, when I asked her, so as being, where do you feel yourself? And she said, I feel like I'm everywhere and nowhere specific. And at the end of the meditation, she came back with the reflection. She said, I feel like I just came home to my real home. And now that I understand this, I can now start to deal with my homelessness. Mm. So I was experimenting with these practices in what I call non-choir groups, like the homeless. Yeah. And then in 2004, five, I was invited by Walter Reed Army Medical Center to take this practice to wounded warriors returning with post-traumatic stress disorder from Iraq and Afghanistan. So I entered into a several-year research project at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington where I trained a teacher to teach this protocol to these wounded warriors and the research was so successful they hired Robin, the teacher, right on the spot and every wounded warrior for a number of years coming through Walter Reed was able to get access to these principles of yoga nidra as part of their healing journey.
0: Amazing. May I ask a question there, Richard? Sure. That's amazing. And I'm very curious, when you said the results were so successful, can you Tell us what those results, what they actually were.
1: We were using a military protocol to measure post-traumatic stress where there's a baseline of 42. Anybody who scores under 42 doesn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. Anybody over 42 up to the highest line of 80 had post-traumatic stress. And at the beginning of the research, everybody was scoring in the high 70s. In other words, they were scoring at a very high level of post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. At the end of the study, they were all under the baseline except for one person who was hovering right at the baseline. Wow. So they scored as having no longer having PTSD. Now, the sample size was small, but significant enough for the people running the study to recognize the potency of the intervention. So, they wove it right into their clinic, the Deployment Health Clinical Center at Walter Reed. And so, we ran groups that went through like a three-week program and every day they got access to uh, yoga nidra if they so chose it as part of their healing regimen. Subsequently to that, it spread, and we got another study in Miami, then Brooke Army Medical Center, and now to date we're in over 35 VA sites around the country, a number of VA and Department of Defense hospitals, We've now done 20 research studies looking at yoga nidra with populations under chronic pain, traumatic brain injury, going through cancer treatment. We did a compassionate care study with healthcare workers who were having vicarious post-traumatic stress from working in the amputee and the burn units. Mm. And we've continued to pile up success in each of the studies. So all of our Trend lines in each of our studies is always going in the direction where we want it. People are sleeping better through the night. They're able to deal with their chronic pain or their post-traumatic stress in ways that they couldn't before. I I did want to mention that when we did that original study at Walter Reed, the military came to me and they said, basically, look, we're military. We don't do yoga and right. we don't do yoga nidra. So, can you change the name of the protocol? So, I thought long and hard and came up with the name integrative restoration. IRest. integrative restoration because it integrates us into becoming a psychologically functional human being. Restoration because it restores that underlying ease of being and joy and equanimity. And then I rest because everything back in the early 2000s was iPad and iPhone. So, why yeah. not I rest? So, a little I or that represents we're putting the ego kind of in its proper position yeah. and rest for restoration. And they came back to me and they said, Well, we can do I rest. Oh, that's brilliant. So, at the end of the study, what I thought was funny, they came back to me and they said, You know, this is so successful. We like what you're doing you can call it Yoga Nidra if you want. So we call it Integrative Restoration I-Rest Meditation or Integrative Restoration I-Rest Yoga Nidra. We're beginning to drop the name Yoga Nidra just because most people don't relate to the word, so they relate to the word meditation. So we're more calling it I-Rest Meditation right. because it is a form of meditational self-inquiry.
0: Definitely. One one more question about the veterans, Richard. They after they reached this baseline after the intervention, what was the rate at which, so I guess my question is, did the results sustain? Was it, and, and this is probably a question I don't fully understand PTSD. So is it once they dropped down to a baseline, did they need to continue the treatment or the yoga nidra stroke eye rest meditation to continue to stay down there? Or is it, Does a single intervention take them down and then they're healed from that trauma? trauma? I think
1: think we need to understand post-traumatic stress in its simple form and its very complex form. A lot of people coming back, say, from military experiences or if they've gone through child abuse when they were younger they have a complex post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. So we're providing them then the tools with which to meet the complexity of that that's gonna unfold over many years of their life. Right. With a simple post-traumatic stress from say a car accident or a plane crash or some illness, Yes, we can see that they can heal through their post-traumatic stress, and it's behind them, and it doesn't follow them. But with people who've had severe injury or chronic PTSD, where it's happened over and over again because of explosions or child abuse or sexual abuse or psychological abuse, that can follow a person for years or their entire life where we're giving them then the tools to keep calming their nervous system to creating a sense of resiliency where what we're seeing in studies is we're actually changing the shape of their brain over time. Mm. And as the brain changes, like for instance, people in complex chronic PTSD, certain parts of their brain structures, their limbic system, have actually enlarged as compared to someone who doesn't have PTSD. And that then, their nervous system in a way is turned on with high emotion and alert and vigilance. Over time, what we see is their amygdala structures actually shrink back to more normal. Other structures grow, the front brain, other parts of the brain that help compensate. And so a person in a way can grow out of post-traumatic stress over a long period of time. It Mm. takes time. So I see that the training that we're giving people that may last three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, I like to get them for a minimum of 12 weeks and self-practice CDs that they're using at home. So Mm. over 12 weeks, 12 times 7 is however many, 84 practice sessions, hopefully. Mm -hmm. They can really begin to grow their brain and realize they can get control of their post-traumatic stress syndromes. Mm. And then keep those tools integrated so they're using them on a daily life when they're having a strong emotion or meeting an experience. For instance, we had one fellow who came in who was part of one of the classes, and he said he knew that the yoga nidra was working because normally when somebody cuts him off on the road, he has tremendous road rage and actually will follow the people into where they ever go and he (laughs) might pull them out of the car and beat them up. He said that he had just experienced that road rage because this big truck had cut him off and he was starting to follow in his mind going to beat this person up to a body pulp. But his hands were turning his steering wheel in the opposite direction and he said to us that's when he knew the practices were really working because he wasn't having to think about taking an alternative course of action his body was beginning to take it just automatically. Amazing. And that's what we really want to see, where the practices are so deeply embedded. As, say, a negative emotion is arising, there's a response to it rather than a reaction. It's just now automatic rather than something somebody has to really
0: think about. You're really helping them turn it into a deep, internalized habit.
1: Exactly, and. Both at a psychological framework with their emotions and their thoughts, so they're no longer held hostage by their emotions, but also at this deep movement of non-separation where we're really helping them stay connected to themselves and the world around them. So they develop these aspects of deep empathy, attunement, resonance both with themselves and others, so they find themselves not separating because one of the distinctive effects of post-traumatic stress is a sense of disconnect from self and from world, Mm. where the practices of yoga nidras and meditation help people reconnect to themselves, reconnect to the world, and they no longer feel that sense of isolation or separation, and now they can relate better in the world, and that's when they really start to feel their post-traumatic stress starting to heal and dissolve.
0: So when you describe the 10 step protocol for I rest and the final stages, like steps nine and 10, you refer to in, in relationship to awareness and then eventually going out. But really if we just hone in on this, this idea of awareness, yes, I think of it in relationship to what you said earlier in the interview that there's a, part of you that doesn't recognize differentiation it doesn't recognize separation number 1 how deep does this go with someone like a veteran do you take them all the way down into this deep quality of being beyond separation if so how does that look how does it work and do, you know how do you give them the tools to to navigate that whole space?
1: Yeah, good question. My simple answer is yes. I'll take them as far as they're willing to go. Some are really get interested in this deeper aspect of awareness. Others keep it at a more simple perspective because we could look at awareness like we're all aware of the objects around us. I can look at the computer screen in front of me or down at a chair in front of me. And so we often are saying I'm aware of, but the emphasis is on what we're aware of, not on awareness. In the practices that I teach, I help a person shift their attention from what they're aware of to inquiring and investigating the felt sense of awareness itself. Mm-hmm. So, we started simply by helping them develop an ability to have a wider perspective. One veteran gave the image he felt like he was up in a helicopter looking down at his experience of post traumatic stress rather than being so caught in it. Mm. So, we helped them become first a witness to what they're experiencing. And then we helped them inquire into what's the difference in your body. When you keep yourself as a witness, so you're in subject-object relationship, you're a witness to what you're witnessing, what's the difference between that as a felt sense in your body to being witnessing? So you move from being a subject to being a verb. Instead mm-hmm. of being a witness, you feel yourself being witnessing, seeing. And by doing simple experiments with people like this, they can begin to feel how when they're a witness, they're more up in their the front of their head, they're in their head, they're separate. As they enter into being witnessing, their locus of uh, attention kind of drops into their heart and it becomes more expansive and connected. And then I'll take them through these five simple questions of being. When you're just being... Where do you feel yourself? And I always get, no matter the audience, these answers like, I feel myself spacious, open, quiet, calm, peaceful. And as I take them through these five questions, like I was recently at a veterans center where it was for inpatients with veterans with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. And they were typically in the hospital for six to nine months learning different approaches to help them heal, get back into life. So I had this group, and as I gave them these different questions, and I asked them to shift from being a witness to being witnessing, when I asked for reflections, this one veteran, I'll never forget, he was sitting over to my right, he said, I feel like I just came home. Mm -hmm. He said the same thing that the woman in the homeless shelter said, and as he said it, I could palpably feel he was really present. And the attendants later told me that it was rare for him to come to any group, and it was even rarer for him to stay through the group, and it was very rare for him to comment. So for him to stay in the group and then to make that comment, it felt to me like a big stride in his, in his own life. And I could actually feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up when he said that statement, I feel like I just came home. So I try to create simple inquiries, questions that people can take on, make their own experiment. Oh, when I'm just being, I do feel at peace and my thinking mind does slow down and Then I'll add, like, okay, so add to that just taking a nice long exhalation, which helps soothe the nervous system or sense your hands and your feet that help to give them a sense of ground. So as we add each of these elements to the practice, but we keep coming back to being as we interweave it all together, it gives a sense of congruency and integration. And then we do the same thing with emotions, We're helping them feel their emotions in their body and how to respond versus react to their memories and beliefs. And we keep weaving in the feeling of being to everything we do. And every once in a while, most veterans at the end of the practice will say, I really feel like this is a gift. I wish I had learned this when I was first starting on my healing journey. Thank you very much. I feel like I can go back into my life with these tools.
0: Mm.
1: But every once in a while, we'll get a veteran who will say to us, there feels like there's something more here. And we'll say, yeah, there are deeper practices to really go into the depth of awareness and let's keep going. And here's another group you can join that takes it in that continuing depth of meditation and self-inquiry. But I find most people you know, what they want is to heal to a certain extent where they basically feel okay and go back into the marketplace, go back into their lives with these skills. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, we get a person who really does feel like, let's go all the way. Let's keep going into this deeper inquiry of meditation and and awakening. So I, I say that the practices are here to help people and, um, Heal, develop a sense of well being and resiliency, but also to uh, have a practice where if they really want to awaken to the deepest aspect of their true nature, we can offer that to them as well.
0: You kind of spoke to this, but I, I still like to ask the question in your work with veterans what has surprised you? Was there anything that you didn't expect, whether it's a broad theme or particular?
1: I think there are several things. One is when I came to bringing this to the military, you know, they were very skeptical. I met with a number of high ranking military advisors and they wanted to ask me what would happen to our service members if they really learned this practice. And as I told them that it would help them no longer feel a sense of separation, that it would really heal these different aspects. I was met with such enthusiasm that it really gave me a deep appreciation for the depth of healing and the depth of support that the military did want to offer to their service members Mm. and often how bereft they felt because a lot of the techniques they were using weren't being as effective as they wish for helping heal things like post-traumatic stress. So the openness in the military itself. The other was... How once a veteran, and a veteran can be either an active duty or someone who's retired from the military service, when they took up these practices, how quickly they fell in love with them, especially because we were saying you're welcome to lie down, you're even welcome to fall asleep. And that they were reporting things like a number of our Vietnam vets were saying that they had slept through the night for the first time since Vietnam. Wow. And sleeping through the night meant that they got a continuous five hours or seven hours of sleep, where before they were constantly awakening. And then how, how responsive uh, the protocol has been with service members with chronic pain. I've just been astounded when people would come up off the floor and say things like, "The pain I've been experiencing for twelve years is gone. What happened?" And that they really do take to the practices. Mm-hmm. And well, just, th- just that one military fellow in, in the recent who said, you know, I feel like I just came home. I, I've heard that over and over and over. It just astounds me, the simplicity of what I'm offering, but the profound effect that it has.
0: I want to ask a few sort of rapid fire questions here, but before we move on, because we're, we're going to wrap up the interview. Sure. I would just like to ask one specific question about what you just said in relationship to pain and that gentleman asking you what happened. What, mm-hmm. How do you explain it? What did happen? I
1: think uh, when we have pain... There's a tendency to label it and basically create a history and a story around it. In Yoga Nidra, we help them peel off the label pain, meet it as sensation. And whenever we dive into a sensation and and ask, where is its absolute center or periphery, we'll never be able to find it. Because Mm -hmm. in a way, pain is simply compressed space, as a quantum physicist once said to me. Mm -hmm. And as we investigate it, it breaks up. And a lot of the psychological attachments we have or aversions to the pain drop away and we're just left with sensation. Also, we're helping them switch channels so that they go away from feeling the pain to feeling other parts of their body and all of a sudden the... uh, we In in neuroscience, we call it neural cement, the conditioning, the kind of cementing that had happened around a person's experience with pain breaks up and a whole new rewiring in their brain can take place where the pain literally disappears. Mm. It, it may come back, but now they're getting a tool with which and they can meet it and learn how to work with it. But on occasion, we get people who say the pain never comes back. It's gone. It's so. a... Miracle, we might say.
0: Yeah, I would say so. And if we had unlimited time, I would like to ask you a lot more questions about this, but I wanna round it out now with just a few short questions. In, in your opinion, when is the best time to meditate
1: and why do you feel that way? I always love this question. And it, it basically is anytime we can get to it. Yeah, But I mean, for simple sake, I would say earlier in the morning because we haven't started our day We're in that transition point from sleep to waking. There's a kind of a portal that can help ease us into meditation. And also, it sets the tone for the rest of our day. And if we are deciding we'd like to learn meditation, if we do it in the morning, we're no longer having to think about when am I going to do it. So I would say in the morning is the best, but any time we can get to it, I'm a pragmatic person. If it's just before you crawl into bed, then do it. Then you'll take it into sleep, but early in the morning.
0: So in your life and in your work, who have been your greatest influences and inspirations?
1: Well, I have to say Jean Klein, who was my spiritual mentor. Laura Cummings, who was my original mentor with in the early years. I stu- had great studies with Dave. TKV Desikachar in India in the therapeutic aspect of yoga. There are other teachers that I've had. Stephen Chang was my Taoist master, but I've had so many lights in my life, including my children, my wife, you know, the mm. people around me who are my closest allies. They're the ones who I day-to-day have interactions with. And to me, they're my, in a way, my greatest teachers because I'm with them every day. For many days and so I learn more about how I interact with them but in terms of awakening Jean Klein of course the teachings of Ramana Maharshi and Shankracharya mm. from Advaita but really it's day-to-day living I would say is my best teacher my best mentor
0: can you share any tips for new and aspiring meditators
1: The simplicity of meditation, it is not difficult. If we're searching for something complex, we're going away from the very simplicity of being. I wish that when I had first began meditation, someone had been able to just sit with me and not give me a lot of techniques, which is what I got filled with initially, but just to welcome me to the simple feeling of being and to really help me see that this is, in a way, the goal. This is also the path. This is also the basic teachings, just the simplicity of being. And then all the different techniques are simply helping me or helping a meditator fall into this ease of being all day long. But it is, it is this simple.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard. How can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you?
1: Uh, Thanks for asking. Uh, I do have a website, uh, iRest.us will bring you to my website. Uh, We also have a portal if you put in nondual.com or nondual.org, but iRest.us is the main Mm. site. And on the site, We have the different retreats and trainings that I give and my staff, my senior trainers give around the world. We have a lot of books and CDs that I've written or that my teachers have written that um, basically showcase the practice of meditation and yoga nidra. So we're trying to offer a lot of gateways to people and webinars and teleconferences like this that you're offering. uh, We have links to different ones on our website as well. We also have the research that we do uh, is on our website and different portals to support uh, that help people if they really wanna learn how to meditate or inquire into this simple feeling of being and healing.
0: Everyone, I will include a link to Richard's website in the show notes for this. And I encourage you to go check out his website. It is rich with resources. So if you enjoyed this interview, go check it out, learn about his retreats, pick up one of his CDs. There's also quite a few videos and audios right there on the uh, site so you can learn more about it. And do you have, Richard, do you have any upcoming teachings or retreats that you can share with people?
1: I do. I have a yearly 10 day silent retreat I do here where I live in San Rafael, California. I have another one in Canada later in the year. And we're doing a lot of seminal work now raising funds for our work with relief from human trafficking, sexual trafficking. So we've just translated the protocol into Nepali and Hindi, and we're coming into the United States. So we're doing a fundraiser at the Sedona Film Festival at the end of this May to raise funds for our work with survivors of human sex trafficking. So a number of events, retreats, and there's some trainings. Uh, If you go to the website, you'll see we're offering our level one training for people who actually want to learn how to teach this approach to meditation. Those are coming up here in the United States and abroad in England and Australia.
0: Fantastic. And can people... If they want to give to that fundraiser, is there a link on your website?
1: We have our normal link for donations, and we're creating a new link on our website that's specific if they want to give specifically to the relief fund for our work helping human trafficking.
0: Great. Richard, I want to thank you so much. This has been such a rich interview, and it's been great to talk again.
1: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation too. Thank you very much, Morgan.
0: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Richard Miller. If you want to learn more about his work, I've included links in the show notes, which you can find at www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Also, can you let me know how I'm doing head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and a review. I read them all, and i love to get your feedback. And today's podcast was brought to you by our free How to Meditate mini-course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons. You can sign up over at aboutmeditation.com. That's www.aboutmeditation.com. So finally... Let's end with a quote. This one is from one of Dr. Miller's primary influences and inspirations, Jean Klein, who says, the root of all desires is the one desire, to come home, to be at peace. The root of all desires is the one desire, to come home, to be at peace.